Nehemiah 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakala. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses, which are, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But it, I'm sorry, if you are unfaithful, thank you, please. I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people are at the furthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give the servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. So, uh, listen, Mosaic, uh, as we start this series today, I want to encourage you, uh, over the next eight weeks, either have that Bible app on your phone or bring a Bible with you, or if you don't have one and you need one, um, please ask us and we'll, we'll give you one. Um, but we are going to dive deeply into the, the chapters of Nehemiah, an Old Testament book, over the next eight weeks. And I think it probably is a pretty pivotal uh, priv- pivotal series for our context and kind of this moment at hand. And so just want you guys to know, like, I, we're, we're, we're giving this a lot of thought and a lot of prayer behind the scenes as we put this content together. I uh, want to show you a picture of my sister-in-law, Katie. Um, Katie and her husband, Nick, they bought an old historic home in the city of Detroit about six years ago. You're going to see a few of those pictures. A beautiful home. Although it had uh, great bones to the house, it needed to be completely restored. And, uh, and so on weekends and evenings, with the help of family and friends, they poured their hearts and souls into the renovation. One room at a time, picking out paints and light fixtures and hardware. It was absolutely stunning. They are craftsmen and artists, and so everything was absolutely gorgeous. I'm guessing you're going to see this soon here. But throughout the process, they actually learned that they were going to become uh, uh, new parents. They were going to give birth to my nephew, Arlo, which by the name you can tell they're hipsters as well. Um, 
thrilled. Uh, it gave them added purpose in finishing this house very quickly. It was a monstrous task, but they were now up to it. And when she was about six months pregnant, ready to go into her last trimester, with only one bedroom left to complete, um, I'll never forget the text that my wife Amanda got from her, that the house was actually on fire. And it wasn't exactly her house, but her neighbor's. Her neighbors was engulfed in a roaring blaze, and once the firemen that were at the scene realized that that home was a lost cause, they then turned towards Katie's house, desperate to save it. But as the roof of her home caught, she stood in the street, pregnant, watching as her dreams just quite literally up in smoke. It was devastating. They were displaced for the next 18 months, welcoming my new nephew into temporary housing, They were learning how to be parents while unsure of what to do with all that just happened. They were trying to figure out if they could get insurance, why insurance was being so stubborn with them. They faced this enormous and daunting task of rebuilding. They had to call contractor after contractor after contractor. We would walk her through months, not years of like, of them going, I don't know if we have the energy to continue to do this. It felt impossible for them countless setbacks and for months there was some paralysis like they just didn't know what to do because of how much had to be done and for many of us in this room if we're honest for many of us in this room we finally have come to terms with some of the devastation and crisis and chaos that we've gone through over the last two years right now the divorce rate is is up families have crumbled Rhythms that were once healthy in our lives are now really unhealthy. Some of us still have a fear of venturing outside and into spaces like this. There have been relationships that have been destroyed because of the polarity that we have experienced over the past two years, if not the last eight. Economies have been upended. Education has been disrupted because education has been disrupted. People's work has been disrupted. There's really no, there's no one right now going, yeah, life is good. We're good. There's nobody doing that. In virtually every sphere of life, we're looking at where we are and where we've been, and we're asking ourselves, if you're anything like me, is it time to try and start putting some of these pieces back together? Is it time to actually build again instead of being so ravaged by chaos and uncertainty that all we're doing is really just trying to get through to the next day? And so we study Nehemiah. Nehemiah, I want to warn you right here, this is not a prescriptive book about what we're going to do. This isn't going to be a series where we all try and lead like Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city of New York. That's not it. Instead, we're going to look at at this story and the remnant of the Israelites, and we're going to ask the question, how do they engage with their God, and how do they engage with their world as they're faced with such a massive task ahead of them? What does this show us about living a life faithful to God? And what does this show us about God's faithfulness to us in a season where many of us are going, okay, I think it's time to actually rebuild and return to some type of normalcy. And so as we go through this series, and as I process through some of this today with you, here are the questions that I really want you to walk through. One, what feels in disrepair right now in your life? What's felt a little shattered? 
what feels a little broken. Marriage, work, sibling relationships, emotional health, physical health, mental health. Now let me launch into a little historical context for those of you that maybe haven't read Nehemiah before. In 586 BC, Judah falls to the empire at that time called Babylon. And Babylon, one of their assimilation processes, when they conquer a people, they would take the most influential of those people, the culture creators of that group of people, into exile and back with them. And so the first round of Israelites are taken from Judah into Babylon. In 539 BC, Babylon then falls to Persia. And the king of Persia decides that he is going to grant freedom to the first group of exiles, and they are released to return to their land. In 458 BC, the second group of exiles now get to return to their land as well. And then in 445 through about 433, Nehemiah begins this mission of rebuilding the city and hopefully reaffirming the dignity of his people. Now here's the problem, and it's important to just be honest with the problem. Nehemiah has just learned from his brother that it is not going well for those who are back in Jerusalem. Those two rounds that have returned, it's not good. Whether those who were never taken out of Jerusalem in the first place or those who were in the first group of exiles to be released, the city is a wreck. And they are unprotected now and vulnerable to other raiding armies because they are no walls. And Nehemiah is distraught because of this. You, you know this, but we're a part of a family of churches which now represent probably 50 to 55 different countries of origin that people are coming from. And so it is regular that I meet with somebody. It's a consistent practice to meet with somebody from Sudan or Venezuela or Nigeria or Iran who long to see their people that are in the middle of political issues at home or civil war be restored. We get this angst. We are with people that we love deeply on a regular basis who long to see their people restored back home the way Nehemiah does. For there to be justice and peace. Nehemiah feels that burden. He's heartbroken for his people. But this is discouraging for these people for a number of reasons. Obviously, they're the practical problems that exist without a wall But what's potentially more important is there's a spiritual problem that casts a cloud over the situation as well. Israel has claimed in a polytheistic world that there is a monotheism that needs to be latched onto. In a world where uh, at this point in time, a bunch of different people groups are saying, hey, there's a bunch of different gods to be worshipped to to get what we want. We got to worship all these different gods. Israel comes in and says, no, there is one God that is Lord. And they claim to the nations now that they know him, that that God cares for them as people and that God has their best interests in mind. And so what's happening right now to Nehemiah is Nehemiah knows this doesn't just look bad for our people in the short term if this doesn't turn around. What does this say about our God to the the global viewership of what's happening? A God we have actually claimed to be both powerful and personal. What is every reigning country around us about to think? And so Nehemiah understands this. There's a theological problem. There's the personal problem because these people are his kin. 
They're unprotected. But there's this also bigger theological problem. How is God actually going to fulfill his covenantal promises if every nation laughs at the way he cares for his people? How is that going to work? What type of testimony is that going to give to the watching world? And so Nehemiah begins to pour out his emotion and his anguish about that situation at hand. Now, this is the opportunity for us to ask the question ourselves. When we look at the rubble around us, are we as honest as Nehemiah? As we say often at Mosaic Church, God loves you so much he will only meet you where you really are. Not where you could be or should be, but where you really are. Are we honest about the rubble in our marriages? Are we honest about the rubble in our singleness? Or in our parenting? Or in our physical unhealth? Are we honest about the rubble there? My sister-in-law and her husband Nick had to deal with the rebuilding of their home. And they had to go through and account for everything. They had to catalog and mourn every light switch and every rug and every article of clothing and every piece of furniture. This was part of the process. They had to get very honest as they surveyed the scene of rubble. And this is what Nehemiah does when in verse 4 he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. I wept for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. A central piece of rebuilding our lives is acknowledging where we truly are. We cannot get where we want to be unless we first acknowledge where we're starting from, which brings me back to the question, what is broken? What is shattered? What needs to be repaired right now? What rhythms have gotten off? Where is your normal not that normal, right? You've chalked it up to normal now, but it's not. Now, some of you, essentially, you can actually turn me off now at this point. You can stop listening because that is exactly where you need to spend some time over the next few weeks. You just need to get to the bottom of it. What area of my life needs to be repaired right now? This is the problem. But then there's the prayer. See, after we diagnose problem, then what? Where, where do we go? Where do, where do we go? Who do we go to? What do, what do we do? And I would actually venture to say that people, when they identify problems, usually tend to go to a few different places. We have a few different responses as our default mode as people. For some of us, we just numb things right away. We downplay it. We say it's not that bad. The past is the past. We compare it with somebody else's deal, which is way worse. So let's, let's pretend we're fine and move on. Other, other people will just go straight to despair. This is the end. It's never going to get any better. Everything has gone to hell. Like, have you seen the kids these days? Like, it's all disaster. Economy, disaster. Weather, disaster. It's just despair, despair, despair. But thirdly, there's those of us like me that we're like, just we pull up bootstraps, right? Which I don't even really know what bootstraps are, but we pull, them, pull ourselves up by them. We get to work, we overachieve, we strive, we go, we got this, I can do this, I can fix it. We just go right away to, yes, that's a problem. My wife hates this because we'll identify a problem in our marriage, there'll be conflict, and I look at her and I go, how do you want me to fix it? And she's like, I don't want you to fix it. I want you to sit in this and feel what I feel for a little bit here. What's your tendency? 
Which way do you tend to lean? Now, here's what's important. This is important. Understanding those three temptations. Ironically, they all point to an unhealthy view of God's power and an unhealthy view of our agency as people. See, we either think that God will do nothing or that God will do everything, which means that we will do everything or we will do nothing. Either one, God is some distant deity that really doesn't care about anything, and so I have to jump into control and strive and do and do and do, or God is some weird, manipulative, micromanaging puppet master. And because he is orchestrating every single step for us, I don't have to do any of it. But here's what we can learn from Nehemiah. He brings this raw emotion to God in prayer. And in prayer, he remembers three specific things. Okay? One, he remembers God's position. He says, O Lord God of heaven. He identifies right away where God is. This is the God of heaven. Meaning he is over all things and has a perspective that Nehemiah does not have. He takes his problem, and he moves it into a prayer. And part of this prayer is just acknowledging God's position. But it's not just God's position. Secondly, it's God's power. He says, God, you are the great and awesome God, awe-inspiring, the weightiest being. This is creator of the God, the one who hangs the planets into the sky, who sculpts the seas and moves the mountain. He is awesome and powerful. He remembers this. And then thirdly, he remembers God's promise. You are the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, Nehemiah prays, with those who love and keep his commands. And then after he remembers these three things, he asks God, and this is so good, he asks God to be like God. He says, God, I just want you now to act out of who you say you are. I want you to act out of your position. I want you to act out of your power. I want you to act out of your promises. My son Judah right now, he's, he's, he's getting close to six this November. And the other day, he looked at Amanda, my wife, and he said, hey, mom, can I get a bird? And she was like, no. He's like, come on. She's like, no, we have too many humans in this apartment and too many animals already. There's no bird. It's not happening. He goes, what if I'm older? She's like, we can talk then. When? She's like, well, the boys have to be, older boys have to be out of the house before we can even have this conversation. He's like, so six years? She's like, six years, yes, you talk about a bird in six years. He leaves, comes back into the room five minutes later, and he has a piece of paper. And he goes, hey, mom. And she's like, yeah. He's like, can you write down what you said on that piece of paper? And she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, just what you said. Like, can you write that down for me? And Amanda just gets this kind of smile on her face and looks at me, and she's like, what is he doing? And he's like, just write it down, Mom. Just, just when I'm 12, I can get a bird and just write that down. I just want to remember it. She says, all right. And she starts laughing and writes it down. And then he goes, can you, can you sign your name, Mom, right at the bottom? And Amanda's just like, oh, my gosh, she's getting contractual with me. What's wrong with this kid? But this is what Nehemiah is doing, right? Nehemiah is going, God, you said this is what you're like, and I want you to act out of what you have said you are like now. Nehemiah remembers God's character, asks God to act out of his character, and then acknowledges how he actually isn't God through repentance. And I just want to throw this out here for us right now. Repentance can carry some shame and some weird religious connotation. Repentance is simply agreeing with God about reality. 
That's how we define it here. It is agreeing with God about reality, agreeing with God about who God is, and agreeing with God about who we are because of who God is. That's repentance. And so you hear Nehemiah go, I now pray, in verse 6, before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, falling, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. It's repentance. And this is really important. Nehemiah repents, and he does so both individually and nationally. I want you to see this. This is a big deal. This is very important as we attempt to rebuild parts of our lives. Because generally speaking, we have people who like the very individual gospel that says, if I believe in Jesus, I'll get to heaven and that's good for me. But they're blinded to national systems and structures that have oppressed and held back other people. Or... We have people who talk all day long about systemic sins, structures, and systems of society. But meanwhile, they strip dignity from neighbors by the way they speak to them. And they never do a survey of themselves individually. But the power of the gospel rebuilds both the individual life and society as a whole. The overarching narrative of the scripture is, God, may your kingdom come to earth. We are not trying to escape somewhere. The kingdom of God is renewing the earth here. And that requires both individual and national repentance. The mess that Israel was in wasn't because they did everything right. There was a lot as a nation that they had done wrong that they needed to be honest about. And all of these are elements of prayer. Repentance is a part of prayer. Putting God in his rightful place and asking to be like God is part of holistic prayer. And so one of the questions we have to ask as we process through this book is what does my, my prayer life look like? What is prayer meant for me? Maybe your prayers have lacked some guts because you don't choose to remember who God is as you're praying. And so your requests aren't as big as they should be. You're not remembering that God is powerful or in a significant position with perspective different than your own. Maybe you've jumped to productivity like I do before prayer sometimes. You've assessed the problem and you just want to fix it. If you're like me, you think, yep, yes, I need the courage to rebuild. Let's go. Let's get this done. I'm, gonna, I'm done with masks. I'm done with distancing. I'm done with sadness. I just want to get back to the way things are. But if we learn from Nehemiah, we must begin with prayer that is holistic in nature. Not just a list of requests, not just a list of attributes of God, but also repentance. And so we start by identifying the problem, and that problem needs to move us towards prayer. You're going to want to go to a bunch of different places when you get honest about your problems, but if we're looking to Nehemiah as a model, and Jesus as well, we then move to prayer. But that prayer will inevitably lead us to productivity. Problems lead us to prayer, and it's the prayer that will always lead us to productivity. And so we'll end here in the next few minutes, but it's important to note that many of you know that Nehemiah is part of the Old Testament. And thus it's functioning out of, Bobby uses this language a lot, but it's functioning out of the Old Covenant. This is a covenant or a promise that says, I will bless you if you uphold this way of being. 
I protect you if you follow through on your part of the bargain. My promises are upheld by your righteous production. But what we will return to almost weekly throughout this series is that Nehemiah, though he got some stuff done, completely misses the mark as a godly leader. By the end of this book, we are going to find that though God's promises, God promises a borderless kingdom that blesses all nations, tribes, and tongue, Nehemiah still walls off this city, casting those different than he aside. Nehemiah, by the end of this book, is so angry that people don't uphold the law that he violently disciplines people in the streets. We don't hear this side of it, do we? We just get the courage to rebuild. This is not the inspiring leader we hope for as the book continues. But this is what happens actually throughout most of the Old Testament. If you actually read it with Moses and Adam and Eve and Noah, you get these epic figures. You're like, yeah, I should model my life after them. And then halfway through their story, you're like, no, I should not model my life after them. The Old Covenant points to the need for something more. Always does. The Old Covenant points to the need for something new. And so the cupbearer that attempts to rebuild what was is written about to point to one who will bear a different cup, making all things new by passing what was to create something even better. A borderless kingdom where all will be blessed and sit down with the one who made them and loves them. This is the gospel. God comes into the world as Jesus and bears the cup of suffering. He takes the, the worst that people offer, and yet his love for us is so deep that it defeats death itself. It is the new covenant that doesn't promise love and protection only if righteous law and production is upheld, but shows us an undeserved love simply because God loves you. That is one of the most complex things to get our stubborn arms around. God loves you simply because he loves you. Because that's who God is. And out of the family, or out of the finality of God's love, best seen in Jesus, now we get to do good things. Right, we get to be honest about our problems. We get to go to God in prayer. We get to rebuild areas of our life. Now, here's what happens when we define ourselves by and, and both see the world through the lens of the gospel instead of, a, of some framework that says we are what we do or we are what we have or we are what other people think of us. What happens is we're formed in, into confidently humble people. Confident because we start to learn that there is nothing, nothing we can do that's bad enough to lose the love of the Father. You are loved simply because he loves you. And humble because we start to learn that there is nothing good enough we can do to earn it. You are loved because he loves you. And, and Mosaic, this produces people who are confident enough to risk. Risk going back into areas of life, marriages or singleness or our sexuality or our finances. It builds people confident enough to risk going back and rebuilding because even in our flaws, God has invited us into 
this renewal and this rebuilding process as kids of the king who are meant to step into incredible works. And church, it also produces a humble people, humble enough to risk rebuilding and going back into these areas of our lives because even if we fail, God is still loving us and with us in the rubble. And so I understand some of you don't want to actually kind of lean into different areas because you've done it before and you have failed or you've been hurt as you've tried to rebuild marriages or rebuild some sense of who you are outside of your relationship with a significant other or outside of your relationships with your parents. But this gives us the confident humility to do it again because God will meet us in our failures and God has a massive vision for the good works he's prepared for you to do. And so some of you in this room, you know it. You need to start to rebuild an area of your life right now. And some of you will sense the calling that I think many of us in this room have to really rebuild a church that had to go through a year and a half of pandemic. Trying to figure out how to love each other well over Zoom, which is stupid. That's stupid. Or how to reach out to the city on Zoom. It's dumb. I'm hosting trivia nights trying to engage with new people from the neighborhood. That's stupid. But that's what we've been through. And some of you will sense the calling to help us rebuild this church community. And for many of us, New York City is home and we have no plan of going anywhere. And it's not okay to see the disparity at play. It's not okay to see the food insecurity. It's not okay to see the mental health crisis that continues to unravel. It's home. And so we have to ask God, God, where do you want me to help step into rebuilding and renewing a city you love? But none of this will happen well unless we first acknowledge the problem. And none of this will help well unless we acknowledge the problem and then we actually move it to prayer. And then move into rebuilding. But we are made for it. God has always been in the business of renewing and rebuilding. And as his kids, we are invited to join him. And so Paige and Macha, you can come up. I'm going to pray and then Dean is going to lead us in receiving and partaking in communion today. Father, we just want you to speak in these moments about the area of life that we just need to identify the rubble. Our irony is not lost on us as to what weekend we are starting this series. You continue to build things from the ashes and bring life out of death. And so we're asking in this space that you would just help us identify the areas of life in which we need to commit to rebuilding. God, you are holy and glorious and good. You're gracious and you are great and in control. And yet at the same time of being in control and working all things out for the good of those who love. 
you also give us agency. We believe this. And so we're asking you to direct our processes, our discernment, our decision-making so that we can spend this next season really rebuilding. We pray that what happens in this space over the next few months, we pray that it would move into this city. That your church would speak a better word about who you are, Jesus, the true cupbearer, the true and better cupbearer. We love you. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen.